Okay, so I wanna begin with something that I think every single person in this room can relate to. If you don't have a smartphone, then you probably can't relate. But if you have a smartphone, I'm, I'm thinking you can relate uh, to this. And it's something that is kind of at times embarrassing, but depending on the content of what you send could actually be horrifying. And that's when you send a message to the wrong person. When you send a text to someone who you thought was someone else, and you actually mistook their identity or mistook the name or sent it to like, maybe you have, because we have three Jakes in this church, maybe you sent it to the wrong Jake and you sent Jake one something that you meant to send to Jake two um, and it actually should have never gone to Jake two or whatever. But that moment when you realize that you sent a text message to the wrong person, again, depending on the content, could be horrifying. It could be awful. It could be a nightmare. I have a friend six months ago, he was uh, sitting, he said he was sitting at lunch and he received this text message from someone that he knew but hadn't talked to in years. And so he's like, oh, this person texted me. So he opens the text message and in it is a screenshot of a photo he posted on Instagram. And this person said, look, I can't believe this guy. He always makes everything about him. This is ridiculous. I cannot believe it. And so obviously this guy sent the wrong message to my friend and he was like, you know, probably in the moment when he realized it just said all sorts of panic. And so my friend decided, you know what? I've got to take advantage of this. And so he sent a text back and said, I don't think you meant to send this to me. So then my friend tells me, he says, listen, the best part was the guy had read receipts on. And so as soon as I sent him that message, I saw immediately he read my message and knew that he was confronted with the reality that he sent it to someone else. And so this guy, you know, again, like starts typing the little dots populate on the iMessage. And so he starts typing and he, he sends a message back. Hey, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I meant to send this to my wife and I apologize. Yada, yada, yada. The whole, you know, thing of like why he was wrong. So my friend says to him, he says, okay, that's cool. But next time you decide to talk bleep about me, you should talk about it to me, not your wife. And the guy didn't say anything back. And so it was like this moment where I'm sure this guy was like petrified, just like horrified that he had absolutely sent a text message to the wrong person for the wrong reason, and it just got him stuck or frustrated. Now, I think that is relatable, and I think that's horrifying, but, but the image I want to imagine, the image I want to kind of stick in your mind is maybe more the face of that of like a two-year-old, okay? Specifically, when a two-year-old comes running and grabs hold of your leg, and you as an adult just think like, who's touching my leg? And you look down, and there's this little kid, and you smile, but that kid realizes you're not their mom, and you're not their dad. <laughs> And like the horror on their eyes like this. And you know, like, I mean, you gotta put yourself in the baby's like shoes. Um, that kid is going up to a giant and, and they're grabbing hold of a giant by the legs. And then we look like, hey, you know, like all bright and like animated and this person's terrified. And they're horrified all because they mistook someone's identity or they misplaced their affection on someone who or something uh, that they shouldn't have or that maybe they perceive to be something else. And then that moment of like horror is something I think we all relate to, but I think that moment of misplacing our affection or our attention on something is something we can relate to when it comes to being with Jesus. You see, because I think in the Christian life, far more horrifying than a kid grabbing someone's leg, far more horrifying than sending someone a text that you shouldn't have sent to anyone, let alone the person you were talking about, far more horrifying than that is when we have something that we believe or something that we hold on to, or something that is dear to us, and we look to it for something only to realize that something wasn't 
found in that place, in that person, in that item, but it actually should have been found in God. And it should have been found in Jesus. And sadly, a lot of people live their lives not realizing that they have actually misplaced their affection or misplaced their attention on someone or something that isn't God, looking for something to find fulfillment, to find significance, to find some sort of satisfaction, and then only later discover that that thing they were looking for can only be found in Jesus. Now, it might sound crazy, but I think this is what a lot of Christians and a lot of people who follow Jesus actually do with money. I think a lot of people find in money something that they should find in God and only later discover that they've misplaced their attention or misplaced their affection. Now, that might seem outlandish. That might seem like, well, no way, that's not true, or that seems like a bit of an exaggeration. And, and, and you know, I, I get it, and I understand why you could feel that way, but I would venture to say that there are some people in this room, myself included, who have either done this in their past when it comes to God and money, or maybe you're in a position or a situation where you're currently doing this between God and money. And it might seem like hyperbole, but I'm here to tell you it's not. In fact, in Jesus' word, by the way, this thing keeps dropping on me, and so I'm going to keep raising it, and it's going to keep sliding down, and so, you know, I'm just going to try to ignore it, but I, I had to address it. And so I had to address it because it's going to drive me nuts. And so it might seem outlandish. Back to the message. Don't get distracted. It might seem outlandish. But in Jesus' world, it wasn't. In fact, it was Jesus who said this in Luke chapter 16. Jesus speaking to a group of people. He says this in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I don't know exactly what you believe about Jesus, but I think we can all agree that at least 90% of the time, what Jesus had to say was really good. There might be that 10% where we don't like, but we can agree that for 90% of what he had to say, it was really good, it was really significant, it was really meaningful. I am of the belief that 100% of what Jesus said is really good. And so I'm not the one saying, hey, we equate God and money. It's actually Jesus who says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, what's interesting about this is if you follow Jesus' teachings, there is not another thing, there is not another item, there is not another being in which Jesus puts on the same pedestal as God with the exception of money. And so clearly, while it may seem outlandish, while it might seem crazy to think, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't do that, or that's not, you know, that seems a bit like exaggerative, or that seems like hyperbolic or whatever. Like Jesus himself said, listen, this is clearly an issue. In fact, if you want to get statistical about it, nearly 30% of the parables that Jesus spoke, 11 out of 39 or 11 out of 40, depending if you count one as a parable, were about money. And on the whole, almost 20% of Jesus' teachings were about money. So clearly, Jesus understood that there would be a dilemma, there would be a a, a significant pull on our lives, something that potentially would draw us not to God, but away from God, and would compete with our desire to be with Jesus. And, And I think this is really kind of startling, because this situation or this reality is something that affects each and every one of us, because at the end of the day, we all need and want money. And yet, sometimes that need and that want can outpace or outgrow 
what we want and what we need from Jesus. Or at times, we can mistakenly place what we want and what we need in money rather than placing it and finding that in Jesus. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? And I've seen this to be true both personally and pastorally. Personally, in that my life is a testimony of the fact that there have been times where I've looked to money to provide something that only Jesus or God should and could provide in, in its whole or in its entirety. And I've struggled. I've shared my story before in terms of greed and materialism and fear and, and, and debt and kind of racking up things or pursuing something because I thought somehow that would bring me uh, satisfaction or that would bring me some sort of closure or fill some sort of gap in my life. And then pastorally, I've also seen it to be true, not just for me, but for a lot of other people. What I've realized as a pastor is that I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that has struggled in this area. I'm not the only one that has wrestled with this. In fact, if we were to be honest and raise our hands, I won't make you do it, don't worry. But if we were to raise our hands, my guess is that the overwhelming majority of this room would raise their hands and say, yeah, this too has been a struggle in my life. It may not be today, it might be today, but this area of my life has been a battle or this area of my life has been a struggle or a source of confusion or frustration or misunderstanding or tension. And, and you know, I think what it, what's ironic to me as a pastor is that a lot of times a person's wallet, I joke, a person's wallet is the last thing to come to church. And it's also, it's almost always the first thing to leave. And it'll leave for any reason. It'll leave for vacation. It'll leave because the baby's coming. It'll leave because you got mad at someone. It'll leave because the budget's a little tighter this month, or it'll leave because a new pair of Jordans released yesterday that you had to buy. And so something, anything can be a trigger for your wallet leaving. It's the last thing to show up. It's the first thing to leave. And it's this thing that no matter what church I've been in, no matter where I've worked, no matter where I've served, whenever money is discussed, people are inclined to be offended, to feel targeted, to feel like someone is attacking them, to feel like someone is intruding on a space that they have no right or no privilege to intrude on. It's a, it's a space, it's an area where people at times even are willing to get so upset about that they're willing to leave an entire community, not a pastor, but a community of people that they've lived life with because they found contention or disagreement over someone or something bringing up the topic of money. Now, here at Meta, we've decided, Chris and I have talked about this and we've shared this publicly, but we talked about, hey, we want to speak to the heart of money. It's not about money for us. We want to speak to the heart of what God is doing through money, what God intends with our money. And we want to speak to that with excitement, with passion, with consistency, and without fear. And we're going to do it all with a smile on our face. Because at times, if you've been in church long enough, then you've probably experienced the point where it's like, man, someone is beating us over the head with this again. And someone is talking about this. And if I just put five bucks in that offering, maybe they'll just shut up. Maybe I can just like check the box and move on with my life. And we've decided that at Meta, we're trying to flip the script here because Jesus talked a lot about money. We're not saying we're going to replicate that and talk about it all the time because as much as I know, my guess is that if I talked about money as much as Jesus talked about money, we probably wouldn't have much of a church. Even though we know what Jesus said, even though we know what Jesus taught. But we did say we want to speak to the heart of it because there's freedom to be found when we can release ourselves from the bonds and the chains of money and actually tie ourselves and hitch ourselves to the freedom and the love and the grace in Jesus. And so that's the thing that I want to speak to, and that's what I want to talk about. And so the question is this. The question really I think that we have to answer or that we have to wrestle with in just is, that, is this question around why? 
Like, why is it that if Jesus talks so much about money, why is it that if Jesus was so clear about money, why is it that if Jesus was so explicit that money can contend for your heart like nothing else in this world can, why is it that we still get offended? Why is it that it still bothers us? Why is it that Jesus can outline for us how we are to live in this area, and yet for many of us, it's still so difficult to actually apply and follow? And I think really the question that I want to try to answer today is this question here. What are you finding in money that you ought to find in Jesus? You see, because for every single person, this room, listening online, watching, me, myself, my family, for every single one of us, there are things that we are looking for that ought to be found in Jesus and money somehow presents itself as a false and a poor substitute for those things. What we're looking for is not bad. Where we're finding it can be extremely dangerous and harmful. And so I want to share with you a few things that I think, a, a few um, kind of ideas that I think you'll relate to. You might relate to one of them. You might say, that's the source of what I'm looking for. It might be all three of them as we get to them. But before we do, I want to kind of highlight these things out of a passage found in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verse 1 through 10 is where we'll be. And it's a story that is really uh, familiar and, and one that's maybe well-known if you grew up in church, but it's about a guy named Zacchaeus. And so it says this in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. Now, Jericho is about 20 miles east of Jerusalem near the Dead Sea. And so in verse 2, it says, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Where are my short people at? All right, there's a few of you. Okay, no shame in that. That's all right. Listen, let me pause for just a second because we're in this series called With You, and I want you to know that whenever you're trying to get to Jesus, whenever you're trying to be with Jesus, whether it's your height or whether it's a metaphorical thing standing in the way, something will always try to stand in the way of you getting to and being with Jesus. If you're saying, hey, I want to make a commitment to be with Jesus. I want to make a commitment to grow in my relationship with Jesus. Yes, God, I want to be with you, you've just got to know that something or someone is going to stand in your way and try to block your vision and try to block your path and try to block your commitment. And you have got to press through that. You have got to work beyond that because getting to Jesus and being with Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It's going to take some work. Zacchaeus was maybe naturally hindered, but he continued on. Verse four says, so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree because that was beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. I mean, he had some tenacity. He had some grace. I'm going to climb a tree. I might be short, but you know what I can do? I can climb. I'll get around it. I'll get over it. I know where Jesus is going to be. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go meet Jesus. Verse five, and it says this, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Do you know that Jesus wants to be with you? Do you know that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've overcome, no matter what's been set up against you, that Jesus wants to be with you. He wants to be a guest in your home today. He wants to be a guest in your heart today. He's looking for you and he's calling you out among the crowd. You might feel forgotten. You might feel overlooked. You might feel insignificant. You might feel like you've got nothing to offer. And Jesus is speaking through the crowd and calling out your name and saying, hey, I want to be with you. I want to be here with you. I want to commit to you. I want to connect with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. I'm calling you out and I'm saying, hey, I've got to show up at your house today. Are you going to let me in? 
verse 6, Zacchaeus, he said, yes, come on in, quickly climb down, and took Jesus into his house in great excitement and joy. Verse 7, but people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Do you know there's always going to be people who criticize? Always going to be people who speak against? Always going to be people who think you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you, you, you think you're better than someone else, you're hypocritical because you say you follow Jesus, but you messed up here, or you said this one thing, or you did that one thing. There's always going to be a naysayer or a group of naysayers in your pursuit of being with Jesus. But Zacchaeus didn't let it stop him. Zacchaeus said, come on in with the rest of us sinners. Come on in with my lot. Come on in with my boys. Come on in with my family. Come on in and be here, Jesus, because if you're saying you want to be with me, I don't care who is against it. I don't care what stands in the way. I'm going to open the doors and say, come on in and be here. Verse 8, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give, uh, excuse me, yeah, stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Man, I wish the U.S. government worked like that. <laughs> I wish. It's tax season right now. I'm feeling that. I'm praying, Lord, somewhere, someone down the line, hook me up with four times as much as you've taken from me. Verse 9. You can still pray, right? Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now let me just pause again, because again, the crowd called him a sinner. They said he's gone to be in the house of a notorious sinner, but Jesus called him a son. Think about that for a moment. What labels, what names, what adjectives have been assigned to you? Who has called you something that has stuck with you? Maybe from childhood. And Jesus today just wants to whisper and say, listen, you're my son. You're my daughter. I don't care what they've called you. People can give you a name. I'm giving you an identity. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. You see, Jesus, of course, speaks of salvation. And Jesus, of course, is speaking about the fact that, yes, I came to seek and save those or that which is lost. And I came to bring them life. I came to bring them hope. I came to bring them clarity. I came to discover what was once lost or written off by everyone else. And yes, that is true in the context of salvation. But I think this morning, my prayer has been, Jesus, will you come into this space today and bring clarity to what was lost in your intent for money? Will you bring purpose to what was lost with, with this idea of money? Will you bring understanding and grace and freedom to those of us who have been stuck or felt in bondage or felt enchained or enslaved to this thing that actually has been given to us to gift us and enable us to do what you called us to do in the first place? So yes, he came to seek and save the lost, but he also came to bring clarity and understanding. And from within this story, I think there are three things that kind of jump out. And these things aren't all encompassing. These things don't all kind of pertain uh, to the idea or, or, or what it is that you're looking for. But I think of these three things, they cover the whole or the sum of what it is that we're looking for and often look to in money to fulfill. And the first is self-worth. Self-worth. You think of Zacchaeus, it said back in verse two that he was the chief tax collector not in a town, but in a region, okay? The chief, a.k.a. the boss of a job, not for a city, not for like a small village, but for a region. In kind of modern day terms, he was at the very least a district manager. Or, you know, he was Michael Scott, not Dwight. He, he, was, he was the guy overseeing this whole branch for the Roman government. 
You know how you become a chief tax collector? Apart from the obvious of like cheating people? By being really good at cheating people. By being one of the best at cheating people. And so you become the chief tax collector because of your work ethic, because of your diligence, because of your willingness to do what no one else is willing to do. And you work your way up. And eventually, you don't just become the chief tax collector of a large town like Jericho. You become the chief tax collector of a region that covers Jericho and the surrounding areas. You see, in his life or in uh, this scenario, Zacchaeus would have been a lot like Sonny from a Bronx sale. He would have been both feared and respected. And most of you are under 30, so you don't even get it. But listen, just trust me on this. He would have been feared and respected. And people would have recognized that he worked his way up the ladder. They might not have liked him, but they weren't going to cross him. They might not have appreciated what he did, but they knew it wasn't easy to get to where he was. And I think money has this kind of weird or bizarre way of providing a false sense of self-worth. A false sense of like, look at what I did. Look at what I achieved. Look at how much I made. Look at how far I got. Look at how high I climbed. Look at what I've been able to do. And listen, all of that is great when you have money. But if you're finding your self-worth in money, the problem is when you don't have it, then you won't have self-worth to go with it. And so you look at this idea or you look at this thing and you say, well, maybe if I get enough or if I earn this certain amount or if I achieve this kind of status, then that will have meant I made it. I arrived. I'm here. Look at what I've done. And yet the ironic thing of this is that Jesus already said you are worthy. Jesus already said you are enough. Because the problem with placing our self-worth in money is that there's always going to be someone somewhere. So long as Bezos and Amazon are running the world, there's always going to be someone who has way more money and hence far more worth or a sense of self-worth than we do or than you do. Yet, Jesus said, you are already worth it. You know, the value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it, right? The reason you can go to Starbucks and get, like, or the reason Starbucks will sell you, I should say, a, a, a grande flat white for $5.77 is because that's what you'll pay for it. So it's worth it because that's what you're willing to pay. And so in God's eyes, nothing was greater, not, there was no greater sacrifice than offering his son, yet his son replaced you on that cross and said, you are worth it. This is how highly I think of you. It wasn't tied to a bank account. It wasn't tied to an earning statement. It wasn't tied to a W-2. It wasn't tied to any of that. It was tied in the fact that he paid for you with his own son and said, you are already worth it. So why are you looking to something else when I've already declared, when I've already demonstrated, when I've already given everything over and said, this is how highly I think of you. This is how much worth you have. This is how much I love you. This is how much I'm willing to bestow upon you. This is the price I am willing to pay for you. You are worthy. You see, self-worth is not based on what we can do but what's already been done for us. And so I think it's fair to question or fair to ask if this is what you're finding or if this is what you're looking for, the question that you want to follow up with is, 
Are you ever going to be satisfied? Are you ever going to have enough so that you can feel like you're enough? And you might think for the moment or you might think for the time being the answer is yes or I want to try, but I'm here to tell you, that's a hamster running on a wheel. You'll run really hard, really fast for a long time until you trip up, stumble, fall off, shake it off, and realize you got nowhere. And the reason you got nowhere is because someone greater than you already declared you worthy. Not just self-worth, but maybe you're tied into security. Security. I, I love the description that Luke offers of Zacchaeus. And he says that Zacchaeus was very rich. Like how rich do you have to be to be called very rich? Right? Like rich is rich. But when someone says you're very rich, like that, that's a pretty big number. That's a pretty high lot. That's, a, that's kind of a, a significant thing. And yet in that, I think maybe more than anything else, one of the things that money can do or one of the things that money can provide is a sense of security. You see, you have more money in your savings. You have more money in your bank account. You have more money invested in this portfolio. You have more money to, to, to buy, to save, to spend. I mean, very rarely is it ever more money to give, but we'll get to that. But listen, money becomes this thing that like, oh, it provides a security. You know, I need it for a backup plan in case something goes wrong here. Then that way, if I lose my job or if I, you know, uh, change jobs or if I decide to move, I have all this stuff here in tow and I have all this here in place. And listen, I'm not saying that storing money, saving money is bad. Trust me. I like saving money. I think saving money is prudent. I think saving money is actually biblical. I think saving money is wise. But here's the question I want to ask you. If you are committed to Jesus, if you are saying, hey, Jesus, I'm going to be with you in all things and through all things, the question I'd like to know is, why need or why do you have, quote, a backup plan? Why does money need to be your, quote, security if you're blanketed yourself entirely in Jesus? Now, again, I think you can be in Jesus and save. I think you can be in Jesus and have, you know, some sort of sustainable or healthy financial practices. The question is not whether or not you should or shouldn't save. The question is, are you looking to money as your security and not Jesus? Because if you're saying, well, I need this in case things go wrong. Okay, so what you're saying is God might let you down. Yes. Well, no, I'm not really saying that, but I am. Okay, so you're afraid that God is going to forget about you or neglect you or lead you astray. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying, but that's how I'm living. Right? Because security in Jesus, it was Jesus who said, listen, in John chapter 10, it was Jesus who said, my sheep hear my voice, they know my name, and I know them by name, and I keep them in the palm of my hand, and no one and nothing can take them away and separate them from me. It was Paul who wrote in Romans chapter 8 that there is not a single thing, neither height nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor death or destruction that can keep us from the love of God, that can separate us from the love of God. You see, we are secure in Jesus and secure in God. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul wrote, listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not trusting in God, there's this other thing called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has sealed you, meaning he has secured you. He has protected you until the day of redemption. And so you have the trifecta right there. Jesus has given you everything and has said you are completely and entirely secure in me. So why look to someone or something else? You see, security is not based on what you have, but in proximity to who you're with. And I'll use this kind of metaphor for you because I think, you know, a lot of times we wrestle with this whole notion of having more. 
And you know, a couple years ago, they did a survey and they asked income earners who made between $20,000 and $200,000 a year, how much more would you have to make in order for you to feel comfortable? And they kind of broke it up in different pay thresholds, you know, between 20 to 35,000, 35 to 50, 50 to 75, uh, 76 up to 125, and then like 125 up to 200,000. And you know what they found? Literally in every threshold, in every category, uh, the person surveyed responded that about the average number was about 20% more. That if they had 20% more money, they would feel more comfortable. That's what comfort would be. But it didn't matter if they made 20,000 or 200,000. That 20% number stayed the same. And you know what's ironic about all of that is that literally, if you make $32,500, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the entire world. If you made more than $32,500 in income in 2019, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. So you see security in money is not to be found because it doesn't matter if you make 20 or 200, you're always gonna be thinking, I need 20% more. I need just a little bit more if that's what you're gonna find. But again, security is not found in what you have, it's found in who you're with. What makes money safe in a bank is not that the money is in the bank, it's that the money's in the safe. Jesus is the safe. Jesus is our security. So you have self-worth, you have security, and then you have this last thing of significance. Significance. You see, there, there, there's a misnomer, I think, that somehow, if we get or keep more money, our lives will be more important or more significant. And it's kind of this idea, I don't know, we're in New York, so I'm guessing that you've probably experienced this somewhere at some store. Usually it's at the deli counter at Fairway, uh, where someone is like flabbergasted that they're not being served immediately. And they're kind of like pompous in their attitude with like, do you know who I am? Like, bro, you're getting like half a pound of salami. Like, I mean, let's chill out a little bit. But this attitude of like, do you know who I am? And what that speaks to is this question or this issue of significance. I think I'm important, but you don't. And oftentimes what you find is that money can kind of be a really poor substitute for this. And yet money does not equal significance. Zacchaeus was famous for two things. He was famous because he was short and because of his shortness, he had to climb a tree. And he was famous because he gave all his money away. He said, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. And then if I've cheated anyone, I'll give them four times as much. Now, I'm not like a statistics major, but when I do basic math, giving away half and then paying out four times as much as you've taken would leave you pretty broke. You see, his significance was not that he kept his money. His significance was found that he, because he gave it away. Because he offered it up. You know, I think of... Uh, there's an incredible documentary on Netflix, a three-part series that, that's entirely worth watching on Bill Gates. And uh, if you don't know, Bill and his wife Melinda have uh, started this kind of campaign called The Giving Pledge, where they're asking, it, used to, it started off with just billionaires and it's gone beyond billionaires now to just extremely wealthy people who are committed to making this pledge that they, you know, either by the time they pass or when they pass, that over half of their wealth will be given to charitable organizations and institutions all across the world to make the world a better place for the rest of us. 
And, and Bill and Melinda Gates, if you don't know, are the second wealthiest people on the planet with an estimated worth of close to 110 or $112 billion. So they have committed and have pledged that when they pass, that over $55 billion will be given away. And it's not just them, but literally dozens and scores of other billionaires have signed up. And now it's gone beyond billionaires. And people are committing to give over half of their wealth away. You know why? Because they realize significance is not found in what you keep. It's found in what you give. Bill and Melinda Gates aren't sitting around saying, well, we've got to keep every penny we've got. We've got to hold on to this because this is how my name is going to last. This is the legacy I'm going to have. This is how people are going to remember me 100 years from now. No, they realize my legacy, my significance, my impact is tied into what I'm willing to freely give away. Now, you might say, well, if I had $100 billion, I'd give it away too. <laughs> well, one, sign me up at the top of your list. And two, you don't give away you don't learn to give away at $100 billion if you didn't learn to give away at $100. You don't get to the freedom at that point if you've not learned to be charitable and generous before you get to that point. Because more money doesn't make you more generous. As we've learned and discussed, more money is a temptation to actually become more selfish. And see, that's exactly what happened in my life. You know, 2013, I moved to the city. At the time, I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life. And I got caught up in materialism. I got caught up in greed. I got caught up in fear. I became kind of this. I was looking for these answers in something that wasn't really going to provide it or suffice it. And I've shared uh, you know, plenty of times how that whole kind of tower just came crumbling down. And God took me on this journey starting in 2014, the end of 2014 into 2015 toward generosity and commitment and choosing to say, you know what, Ricky, all of this is just a vehicle to do and to become who I've called you to become and to do what I've called you to do. And so you've got to release it. It's not coming from you. You're not self-worth. You're self-made. That's not you. This is from me. Your security, I mean, you just lost it all. And so you've got none of it. Where are you going to find security next? And your significance if you live like this, you're going to squander it all and have nothing of meaning or legacy that goes beyond your lifetime. And so in 2015, God took us on this journey. And he took us on this journey of generosity and sacrifice and living. And listen, I, I wrestled and I prayed all week long about whether or not I should say this or whether or not I should do this. But I just, I felt like I wanted to illustrate this because I think it's important to know that when I speak, I'm not just speaking about something off in the distance. I'm not speaking to ask you to give something so that I can cash in on it. Because as all of you or many of you know, I work outside of the church. I provide, my family, we provide, and God has provided for us outside of what's happening here at Meta Church. But in 2019, just a short five years after this journey began, we were able to give as a family over 30% of our income to the church and to other organizations and to other entities outside of ourselves. And the reason why I don't say that to say like, well, look at me, pat myself on the back. The reason I say that is because as God continued to bless us, we realized we had way more than we needed and it made more sense to give. We were able to save, we were able to plan, we were able to do those things, but we were able to give at a level that we've never given. But we didn't start at that number. Five years ago, we were 30 grand in the hole. And so we didn't have, you know, 30% of, you know, discretionary income to just offer up elsewhere. 
But as we started making this commitment and realizing that our significance wasn't going to be found in what we had, but in what we gave, it changed how we lived in every area of our lives. And as we've continued to be faithful, I'm 100% convinced that God has continued to provide increase because we've been more willing and more accepting of the fact that this isn't for us, this is for others. And my hope and my prayer is that as a family, we can continue to commit. I don't know what the bar is going to be for this year. I don't know what level we'll be able to give to. But I know that we're committed to saying, God, our security, our self-worth, our significance is all and entirely wrapped up in you. And because it's wrapped up in you, we are free to do whatever you ask us to do in this area. And so the question I want to come back to is the question I started with. What are you finding in money that you ought to find in Jesus? Now, for the record, I want to say this because I think it's important to distinguish between the two. There is a difference between giving to God and giving in the name of God. And I think a lot of times we confuse the two. I think people are willing to say, well, I give to this, 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 and this. But my question is, if you're willing to give, quote, in the name of God, but you're not giving to God, then which God are you actually giving to? Which God are you honoring in that? And so Zacchaeus said, God, I'm giving myself to you. You have all that I am. You have all that I have. And so I'll give half of my wealth back to the poor. I'll give four times as much. But what he was suggesting and what he was indicating was that, God, I trust that by giving myself entirely to you, by giving all of my money to you, it's all yours, you're going to replenish it and you're going to provide for me to cover up the difference of the hole that I'm about to be in. And that's all giving is, is saying, God, I trust you with all of it. And because I've trusted you with all of it first, I'll be free to give it elsewhere. But if you're looking for money to fulfill or satisfy something that only Jesus is intended to satisfy, you'll find yourself struggling every step of the way. And the thing that I'll leave you with, the thing that I'll close with this morning, is a really simple equation. And it's really obvious, but you just need to know that being with Jesus is greater than being with money. Money is temporal. Money is free-flowing. It comes, it goes. Sometimes there's a lot. Sometimes there's not enough. But Jesus is permanent. And Jesus is eternal. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't leave. He doesn't forget. He stands with you. Just like he called out to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. And so we've got to decide, are we willing to open the doors and say, Jesus, come in and have all of it?